don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 23. And today we're talking about 2009's The Road based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by one Cormac McCarthy, who we've talked about a lot. And yep. uh, it's kind of our uh, triumphant re- return after a bit of a hiatus. What was it? We take two weeks off? This is the longest uh, break we've had, I believe. Yeah, it's it was quite a break. And uh, it's because, as we mentioned in the last episode, I had to, to move out of state, uh, out to the, the great state of uh, Alabama. And, you know, just been busy unpacking, getting stuff ready. For the job I'm about to start, and uh, Will's been busy as well, I'm sure, doing God knows what. Uh, yeah. Pulling his yeah, pud. I'm, I'm not even sure what I've been doing. So, uh, yeah, it's it's been uh, a nice break, I guess, but I've, I've missed it. Missed podcasting. Chopping it up. <laughs> Mixing it up. Having a hell of a time with this damn crew. <laughs> Uh, so we decided to do the road kind of off the cuff because we've talked about Cormac McCarthy a lot. He kind of pops up a lot. Um, and we've mentioned the road before as well, I believe. I know we talked about it, uh, because I remembered as I was watching the movie, I know we talked about it in the take shelter episode with the, uh, sort of dream sequences in take shelter where the, you know, uh, what's his name? What's that actor's name? Michael Shannon. Michael Shannon keeps having these dreams of like people attacking him. And I think you, in that episode, you sort of made the connection to like potential, like climate refugee or like, just like the desperation after an environmental catastrophe. And it's almost like the road is like the, the film is just like one extended dream sequence from take shelter, uh, of that sort of worst case scenario. Yeah, it has a kind of feel to it because it is a similar kind of story of, uh, you know, a father trying to protect their child through these uh, insurmountable odds. Whereas in Take Shelter, it was more um, kind of fantastical, although the end, I guess, kind of complicates that a little bit. Uh, In The Road, it's very much more realistic and and gritty in how it's portrayed. and there are some like survival shelters in the road. A few <laughs> yeah. mem- memorable scenes. They, the the man and the boy do in fact take shelter at times. Right, right. Like maybe the most memorable scenes in both directions, like the most pleasing scene and the most fucked up scene, are yeah. both are found, you know, in these shelters underground or basements. Yeah. So this is from uh, 2009, as I said before, based on the novel, which we can talk about because I. I jotted down a few quotes from the novel that I think get help us get toward kind of the philosophy of this, this story. Uh, but it's directed by John Hillcoat, who is, uh, out of Australia, I believe. Uh, yeah. I noticed, I noticed Nick cave did the music and I thought, yeah, uh, then that made sense. Yeah. Do you know the, the movie, the proposition? I, I know it, but I've never seen it. So, you know, Corey's really into it. Um, yeah. It's an Australian film. Guy Pierce, who appears in The, the Road, stars in it. Oh, yeah. um, and Nick Cave wrote that, um, wrote the screenplay for it. John Hillcote also directed Lawless, about Lucy Lawless. Oh, yeah. uh, no, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the bootlegging movie, which Nick Cave also wrote the screenplay for. 
Yeah, yeah. So it, it would make sense that Nick Cave is kind of around, and Guy Pearce, too. He kind of, uh, one of those directors that keeps going back to the well and using these people that they're comfortable yeah. with. I, I like Guy Pearce. He doesn't get a ton of work, like mainstream work, uh, anymore, but I love him in The Count of Monte Cristo, <laughs> Count Mondego. Um, and he was like really weirdly in, uh, oh shit, what's that Ridley Scott? Prometheus. He yeah, was like the yeah. old man in like the, he was heavy makeup. Wayland, right? <clears throat> yeah. Um, yeah. And even in Lawless, which is not a great movie by any stretch, but he's pretty good in that as kind of the psychotic government agent. Hmm. Uh, and and uh, Tom Hardy is in that too. He's kind of grumbles his way through it. Um, and it, the screenplay, I, I, like, okay, so this was adapted by a guy named Joe Penhall, uh, or Penhall, uh, maybe that's how he pronounces it, whose other big credit is he, he created the show Mindhunter on Netflix about the serial killers, mm, yeah. um, about the birth of kind of uh, people that hunt serial killers. Um, and I can't imagine what that must have felt like to be like, oh, you're going to adapt a novel by maybe the greatest American writer of the 20th century or at least the late 20th century into the 21st. Yeah. So he's certainly one of the greatest living writers of the 20th century. Yeah. So, you know, you're Joe Penhall and you have somebody drop the road on your desk, like get to work. Right. And I think it, I, I don't remember the, the, uh, time frame of this, but Cormac McCarthy wrote a screenplay sometime around 2009 for, a movie called The Counselor um, that I've never seen. And I, we were just talking before we started recording about the Oprah interview he did mm-hmm. several years ago. And I think, I'm not sure if they mentioned this or if it was another interview I listened to where he was like sort of lamenting the state of American film and sort of, sort of said the the recent films he'd seen inspired him to write a movie because basically he was saying it was, everything was shit. Um, so it kind of surprises me that he didn't, uh, uh, adapt it himself. Yeah. Well, yeah, it would have been interesting and I wonder how much would have really changed. Um, except for, well, I don't know. I mean, the, the road, the novel doesn't really have a whole lot of dialogue in it. Uh, I would say like probably not a whole lot more than what the film does. Um, and the, and the film sort of, you can see sort of carefully integrates the important or, or most plot important, uh, narration from the novel into like a voiceover or the dialogue, uh, which is, which is of course the challenge of adapting a third person narrative. Yeah. And it definitely hits, you know, some of the high notes from the novel, uh, pretty much word for word. So at, like at the beginning when you have the voice over and, uh, Mortensen has that line of, if he is not the word of God, God never spoke. Right. Um, yeah. That's which is straight yeah, out of the novel, just reworded yeah. to be spoken by a first person narrator. Right. Um, but yeah, this, uh, the not, it's weird cause the road is, is Cormac McCarthy, his most successful commercial commercially novel. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it won the Pulitzer. It, um, he, it was the selection for Oprah's book club. It was made into this film, all that kind of stuff. Um, whereas, you know, something like blood Meridian is definitely seen as being his kind of magnum opus. 
Right. And, and mostly, mostly read, uh, in universities, you know, you come across that one in grad school as opposed to like Oprah's book club. Yeah. Whereas the road is a little bit more, um, you know, I won't say, I think simpler is, is the wrong word, but it, it's easier to get through. It's a shorter novel. It's written in a little bit more of a simplistic style that we still has those flourishes where he writes in that kind of like new biblical speak that he uses every now and then. Well, um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, and you can recognize that from, from the other novels, but I, I would attribute to me, it seems like the success of the novel, the road is mostly dependent on the recognizability of the genre of post-apocalypse, yeah. uh, which is, you know, uh, it's interesting that that has has such sort of cultural value right now. It seems like more and more post-apocalyptic stories keep getting told, and it just, you know, I don't think I don't think Cormac McCarthy was trying to cash in on any sort of cultural moment or or trend. It just so happened that he wrote his post-apocalypse novel at the time that it was becoming popular, and then you know so so more mainstream popular venues paid attention to it and then he gets the pulitzer you know yeah and it was uh i think it's you know worth mentioning that this was when Quentin mccarthy kind of came into the public eye more so than ever before he was kind of mm-hmm. secretive like not not really like a, a thomas pension where nobody knows what he even looks like but uh he was definitely seen as being kind of like one of those big writers up on the Mount Rushmore of, of, you know, living authors. And then he comes down and talks to Oprah and everyone's like, Oh, right. he's, a, he's a real guy. Right. Um, and then I guess it was, um, so, so this novel came out in 2006 and made a pretty big splash. And then in 2007, the Coen brothers, uh, made no country for old men. And, and then in 2009, this film came out. So there was a span of, you know, just half a decade there where I think he just exponentially grew in the sort of public, uh, you know, awareness. Yeah. And in talking about adapting it, so and maybe we've talked about this on the podcast. We've definitely talked about it in person before, but what the Coen brothers did in adapting no country for old men is kind of masterful because it, not only is it just an excellent movie, but it's, kind of significantly different from the book and how it's told the, the, all the events, the structure, the skeleton of the story is there, but right. you know, the, you know, like in the novel, you're inside of, you know, Ed Tom Bell's head mm-hmm. and you get a lot more of his point of view and it makes the novel kind of rich and deep and in a different way from the film, from the way the film is. Um, I, I, so they're kind I'm of mis- different masterpieces. I, I could be mistaken, but I think, uh, I, I read somewhere that a no country for old men started as a screenplay. Like he was like dabbling in writing a screenplay and then stopped and turned it into a novel. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's true or not, but I, I think you can see it in the style of that novel, which is, which is similar to the road. It's kind of minimalist. Uh, it just sort of hears what happened. Um, yeah. And we've talked a lot about world building. Um, and I was, you know, it's, it's very interesting in the road to see the choices that Hillcoat makes 
based on what McCarthy, you know, gives readers. Uh, because uh, I was talking about this earlier with Jensi, a lot of like dystopian writers are really sort of obsessed with the details of their dystopia and the the minute uh, descriptions of like everything that's different now, you know. And and Cormac McCarthy is is not like that, and he somehow is more. Uh, it's it's like more devastating because of the minimalism um it, you know he'll he'll have one sentence with no punctuation that just says like the city was gone or something <laughs> like that as yeah. with no you know and it's just the tone of it communicates exactly what he means and 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 he's astute enough to like understand the images that his readers are working with and that's all he needs to say and we know exactly what's happened or or we know the type of thing that's happened. Yeah. So I, like I said, I, I jotted down some quotes from the book just to, cause I think they're cool. And so I you, think we really wanted to talk about the book. I <laughs> just wanted to talk about Cormac McCarthy kind of as a, as a person. Yeah. Uh, but what you're saying about how he is able to say, say things in like a, a, a sort of pared down way and it, it sort of gives you exactly the image that he wants you to have without going into too much detail. So in the road, it's sort of assumed that there's been some sort of nuclear war or something, some kind of extinction event. So, you know, the, the weather is, is kind of uh, homogenous. It doesn't change. It's always overcast and cold and rainy and that kind of stuff. And so you're supposed to assume it's some kind of like nuclear winter scenario. So instead of going into all that detail and being like, you know, the bombs launch debris thousands of feet in the air, blocking out the sun and blah, blah, blah. The way he says it is, by day, the banished sun circles the earth like a grieving mother with a lamp. <laughs> Which is just like a perfect way of, of explaining what, not only what has happened, but what it what it feels like to experience it. Here, I, I've noticed several recurring themes in McCarthy's work. Uh, and the most important of which is, uh, fire. And, and I want to talk about, you know, carrying fire, which of course is a central theme in, in the road. But, uh, another thing is, is his obsession with the sun, um, which is, you know, maybe related to fire, but, uh, in blood meridian, there's, uh, I guess the subtitle is, or that evening redness in the West. Um, but throughout that book, and especially throughout a book, you've heard me mention a hundred times, uh, uh there's a lot of sort of musings on the sun and there's one, I wish I had the quote in front of me, but it makes me laugh out loud. It's something like he stared at the sun, the sun, like a bunghole to a greater hell beyond. <laughs> uh, so you, don't, you don't run uh, across a sentence like that every day. No, no, a bunghole to a greater hell beyond is a is is a McCarthyism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so this is the second appearance, right, of uh, Vijo Mortenstein, who uh, yeah, yeah was Captain, uh, Fantastic. Captain Fantastic, and this is a you know, we might talk about how these compare because the weird similarities come up. Um, playing and he's playing man in the road. And then, boy, his son is, is uh, Cody Smith McPhee, which I'm not I'm not super familiar with him. No, me neither. Uh, 
but I did watch a, a brief interview with uh, with Vigo where he was talking about how he, you know, he couldn't say enough good things about Cody Smith McPhee and how he acts in the film. And I, you know, I think he's mostly right. He, I, I do too. I the he was very believable. Yeah, and it just those moments where you know as a child you would be overwhelmed and confused and have no idea what's going on he he portrays that really well without being you know overwrought or you know annoying which is always kind of a uh, a risky run with child actors right and then shout out to shout out to the visit by M. Night Shyamalan worst <laughs> worst uh child actors I That's actually it. never watched that was after I kind of gave up on Shamalama Ding Dong yeah Although I still maintain that I've argued with people so many times, and I think we both agree on this, that The Village is a good movie. It's an extremely well acted And people movie. shit on it, and I think it's yeah. a good movie. I think William Hurt. Is it William Hurt? I believe uh, so. Yeah, I think William Hurt in that movie is freaking awesome. Uh, it's a good Anyway. Case. Anyway, uh, yeah, Charlize Theron as woman, uh, the, the mother and wife character uh robert duvall showing up randomly yeah uh guy pierce we mentioned uh michael k williams a great actor who never seems to get like a leading role yeah uh, showing up um and that's pretty much it garrett dillahunt plays the the gang member that uh vigo short shoots early in the film yeah yeah pretty limited cast robert duvall knocks his little moment out of the park though yeah uh yeah, there's a there's not a bad performance in the movie. Um, Charlize Theron is uh, kind of hard to watch. Uh, I mean, not not as an actor, but as a like as the character she's playing is just sort of devastating. She just disappears into the cold night and never comes back. Yeah. Uh, it sort of re- it sort of reminded me of the way uh, the lead character in Leave No Trace, you know, when he leaves his yeah. daughter at like the the cabin, he just sort of walks into the woods, just disappears. Uh, yeah, but yeah, it's a, and that's a thing. It's a, a kind of a th- uh, coming out of McCarthy's writing and out of the way it was adapted and the way it's acted by Charlize Theron, who you know, of course, is very good. Uh, where it's very. Uh, the, the dialogue between her and, and, and Vigo is so incredibly blunt and kind mm-hmm. of cutting and truthful. Uh, and so when she's, you know, talking to him, it's just sort of the things she's saying are like, sound like the meanest things any human being has ever said to another one. Um, and it's just, you know, just the scene where her water breaks and she's just panicking. She's like, I don't want to do this. What kind of life is this? Um, it's just, they flesh out that character way more in the film because in the novel, she's kind of not as present. Uh, yeah, just kind of the exposition really. Yeah. This kills herself instead of wandering off into the woods. So it's a little more, less ambiguous. I think the the way in the novel, she uh, slits her wrists with a piece of, of like slate or something, obsidian or something, (laughs) some very like primordial, uh, death scene. she kills herself in a way someone would kill themselves in a Cormac McCarthy novel. Yeah, and even uh, Robert Duvall's character, um, and actually, I guess all the characters that show up—that's a very kind of, you know, McCarthy McCarthyist uh, trope that you see come up a lot, especially in like 
um, the novel Outer Dark, one of his earlier novels. There are a lot of scenes like that where like these characters, these like deranged characters will show up just kind of on the road out of the blue mm-hmm. and have these like, you know, insane moments that kind of stop you in your tracks. Um, but yeah, the, the mother character, and you know, we've talked a lot about mothers and the, the lack thereof. So in, right. here, in, in the road, we have one but she's not around or I guess at the time that we're watching, she's already gone, but uh, yeah, I I think the mother character in the film is more sort of in keeping with our sort of discussion of mothers, uh, uh, depictions of mothers in films that are in some ways uh, commenting on uh, environmental change and, because it's kind of a slow fade in the in the movie where you see her as this sort of symbol of of youth and beauty and and then you know i thought it was very interesting her hair the first time you see her when she's pregnant is is completely blonde and then the next time you see her while she's about to it's right before her water breaks um, it's like the blonde has faded from her hair and it's like, um, just like sort of the tips of her hair, like her roots are, are back and, and they're brown. And that, I mean, it just seemed very emphatic. Like we were supposed to notice that, uh, yeah. cause it was otherwise that would be very strange. Uh, uh, but, but I think we're supposed to notice the sort of slow fade where she's the sort of exuberant, beautiful woman. Um, and specifically, uh, an exuberant, beautiful mother, because like I said, the first time you see her, I believe she is noticeably pregnant. Um, and then, and then the last time you see her, she's, she's given up and is walking to her, to her death. Um, and so to fit that into what we've said about mothers is that we keep, we keep seeing, um, filmmakers, expel imaginatively expel uh, uh, mother characters because they're working on a sort of archetypal level and and if they're making any sort of comment on on envi- the environment it's certainly a commentary on the concept of mother earth uh, and so we see mothers fading the same way we see the earth fading yeah and so, yeah, I think that analogy holds up pretty well um, in, in all the stuff that you're talking about, the kind of physical degradation that kind of matches what's going on. Uh, I mean, you could, you could call the, the movie The Road could have been called Children of Men and it would have made sense, you know, <laughs> whereas Children of Men could have been called The Road. And it would sure, have been like, eh, sure. sure, why not? Um, <laughs> uh, we need to come up with more kind of swappable film names. Um <laughs> But it, something the film does that I think um, th- that I like, and it, it goes back to some things we mentioned earlier, is that it doesn't really linger on causes too much. Kind of like we talked about um, the scene where like whatever is happening is going down and you have like Vigo looking out the window and you don't really know what's happening, that sort of stuff. Um, and so the way it's the world is described is just sort of, um, I don't know. It, the thing I keep thinking about are the trees 
So there's a scene where they're walking down the road, the, the titular road, and a tree just kind of falls behind them. Mm-hmm. And in the voiceover, it's the, the line of, you know, soon every tree on the planet will fall or something like that. So, and you hear them like every so often when they're outside, you'll hear just a tree fall in the distance. Mm. And it's such like an interesting, you know, the, and you're right that the, the movie doesn't really linger on world building too much, but that was something that I thought was a really nice detail that, that doesn't really go away. Um, so you get this just overarching, just cavalcade of death, right? They mentioned that like all the animals are dead. Um, even when they're at the sea, you feel like the sea, you know, where all life began is just dead. And just yeah, it's like the empty. wrong color. Yeah. And, uh, so in, you know, following along with that, all the trees are dead and are just sort of slowly falling and, and collapsing. It's just sort of, uh, I just thought it was a really kind of powerful symbol to kind of carry through the whole movie. Yeah. It's like, it's like dominoes falling in the back like like it's like nature literally collapsing yeah one tree at a time and it, it's kind of like it, it also kind of made me think of the whole Chekhov's gun thing where if there's a gun on the wall the characters have to fire it before the third act or whatever and you know in a lesser a lesser story it would have been like oh this tree fell early in the film and almost hit them so later that's going to be like the deus ex machina and it's going right to fall that kills the, the bad guy with yeah. the gun yeah um but instead it's like no that's just a thing that's happening that they have to contend with. Yeah, I think uh, something I've sort of been paying attention—I I paid attention to—is uh, the kind of the cinematography of uh, you know the, the just the gray quality to this film. Yeah, and and I've been thinking about this a lot. It's a—it's kind of a—I haven't really sorted this out in my head. Um, but what made what made me think about this topic is uh, I recently rewatched the Thin Red Line on the wonderful uh, Criterion Blu-ray edition. Did you and find it, or did you buy a new one? I bought it. Yeah. Okay. I did the, the old copy that I lost was not the Criterion; it was just an, a regular DVD. It's a sign from God. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I watched the Thin Red Line, and I noticed how kind of beautifully the natural world is depicted in that movie uh as as the setting for this horrible violence and and it's hard to watch the thin red line without thinking about uh saving private ryan which was you know the other or maybe i should say the thin red line was the other war movie uh that came out in 1998 about world war ii and how the cinematography in saving private ryan is kind of like the road it's kind of gray all over and and it makes sense, you know, watching Saving Private Ryan, uh, you know, you want the cinematography to convey the sort of tone. You've got this bleak war going on, but there's something a little bit dishonest about it in Saving Private Ryan because it's like a projection. It's like human emotion is being projected onto the weather, whereas uh, the juxtaposition in The Thin Red Line is that there's this sort of human evil occurring in the midst of this paradise and so you feel the evil even more um and what's what's interesting is like the road sort of complicates that or or maybe is the third installment of that thought because it's 
it is completely gray and and dismal the way Saving Private Ryan is, and yet it's believable because you know because of of whatever the environmental catastrophe that's taken place uh, has taken place, and it's like I said, Saving Private Ryan. The filmmakers are kind of making a sort of kind of projecting human emotion onto the weather but in a way that's sort of what climate change is uh maybe not human emotion but like it's like human will uh disrupting the environment um anyway like i said i don't have this all like sorted out it's just uh i just think it's interesting to see whether or not filmmakers are trying to juxtapose nature and culture or or are they projecting sort of culture onto nature or or how you know how are they representing these things through cinematography yeah and and in the road it's definitely yeah i made a note at one point i said it's a a world without past and likely without future um you have this kind of sisyphean existence that vigo's characters in where he's trying to keep the sun alive and for what like what's the Right. best possible scenario that can come out of this. Um, so there's kind of, um, I won't say that it's a, the film's completely without hope, but the setting and the cinematography and the way the world's depicted is definitely without hope. Um, it's definitely, everything's kind of gruel colored. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's definitely not romanticizing anything about, about living in that kind of world. And I think a part of that, to sort of like Ouroboros back around on myself is to say that because humans have so thoroughly fucked themselves and sort of expunged themselves from the record of the earth, then that sort of leaves the earth in this kind of, you know, dead state where it's, uh, you know, there's no more life. So on and so forth. Um, And, you know, through no fault of nature's own, it's through the sort of, the tinkering of man and the folly of man and all that kind of stuff. Right. And so, and so it makes sense in the road when you're depicting, you know, environmental catastrophe. Whereas when you're like in saving private Ryan, when you're depicting, I mean, anything happening in 19, in the 1940s, uh, in Europe, it's, it's just, there's something a little bit dishonest about the cinematography in saving private Ryan uh, that's that's not dishonest in the road, even though it's similar. You know? Yeah, I was having a, a discussion with one of my friends, my friend Zach, the other day, and we were saying that Spielberg's only made like two good films. <laughs> we were kind of like going back and... and Jurassic uh, Park. Well, if you're talking about like Hollywood movies, Jurassic Park, right, right, right. obviously. Yeah, but we were saying like from like a stuck-up film standpoint, we were... Yeah, we're what did like, you say? We're, um... We're, don't say well, Schindler's List. Well, we were actually saying that Minority Report. <laughs> I freaking love Minority Report. Is one of his Report. best movies, and uh, yeah. Munich, even though it's incredibly long, is very good. Yeah, it seems like uh, there's there's a handful of of directors who their minor, you know, what's considered their minor films are their best films. I think Scorsese is that way too. Like. Uh, the way you know goodfellas has this reputation as like scorsese's masterpiece and I, I like i like the more minor scorsese like freaking shutter island it's just cool yes 
it's the most it's the most tricked i've ever been or like <laughs> or uh <laughs> cape fear right oh yeah uh, which is a remake yeah. of like an older movie but is incredibly good um yeah. so yeah and you, i think our bigger point was like spielberg hasn't made a good movie since minority report um and even then i would say like saving private ryan i i never really loved it but now i feel like it's even aged poorly yeah yeah have you seen i've never seen lincoln but that was like a big deal no i i guess i should see lincoln before i shoot my mouth off i I don't need to worry about ready player one i know that that's a a hunk of dog shit i'm not (laughs) i'm not worried about bad mouthing ready player one uh well speaking of spielberg i know uh, i think it's uh zizek has a you know one of his many millions of youtube videos uh talking about how spill like almost every spielberg film is about reconciling or like uh reinstituting the authority of the father figure oh for sure he's like the bolster of patriarchy i mean schindler's list right that's kind of one big father figure extravaganza yeah arthur schindler and I, you know, you can be impacted by Schindler's List and, and there's a lot to be said for it. At the same time, I, I tend to agree with uh, Stanley Kubrick, uh, who kind of famously did not care for Schindler's List because he said, how can you make a movie about the Holocaust that is a, uh, a story of triumph? He's like, this is not a story of, of human triumph. Uh, this, if you're going to make a Holocaust movie, it has to be uh, a, a profound tragedy all the way around, not about human versatility or like the one good person yeah. who did something. Like, the, cannot don't find be the, the silver emphasis. lining. Right, right. No, that makes sense. And, you know, like, and like you were saying, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that it's a bad film or that it lacks impact or anything. I'm not an idiot. Uh, but I think Spielberg is kind of, I mean, he's, big hollywood guy right he yeah. uh, he makes the inspiration porn that people i mean he made war horse for fuck's sake uh, i'll tell you what my, maybe my favorite spielberg if we're just gonna go off on this tangent i freaking <laughs> love the movie hook <laughs> when yeah, i was but, a kid that was like a transcendent theater experience yeah it's a great it, it's a really thoroughly enjoyable kind of kids movie which kind of jurassic park along the same lines but it's all um, hook is also about, you know, reinstituting the, the father figure, but whatever. <laughs> um, are you excited about, uh, Malik's new movie, the hidden life? I'm very excited about it. I, uh, uh, Corey sent me a link to that, uh, I guess some month or two ago, maybe more. And, uh, from, from everything you read about it, it's, a it's a return to form. He's sort of been, uh, Malik's sort of been experimenting a lot with kind of, you know, new ways of making films, d- digital technology and that sort of thing and unscripted things. And, and people, people shit on these movies a lot. I, I think they're kind of beautifully made. I do think they're a little bit lacking in some substance, but I, I tell you, you know, people shit on the uh, night of cups with Christian Bale, but I think that was a, uh, a pretty good movie. I, I've, I've seen it twice and the first time I didn't much care for it. And the second time I really enjoyed it. And so some of it just depends on, you know, where, you know, what sort of mood you're in when you watch it. But, uh, yeah, hidden life looks to be a more scripted kind of story based plot based, uh, Malik, which 
which the thin red line is I hadn't seen it in years when I watched it the other night. It was a it was a fantastic though emotionally draining experience. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so I guess we should get back and talk about the road a little bit. Yeah, I, I guess um, since that's what this is about. <laughs> and we'll let's say, talk like, about let's talk about uh, the title, the road. Okay. I think I think that's an interesting choice, uh, especially I was sort of had these thoughts in my in my mind watching it, and then at the end, when the when the kid is on the beach and the family approaches. Uh, I guess Guy Pierce says, if you're going to stay here, you need to stay off the road. Yeah. And it, and it seems like the road becomes a metaphor for kind of the way things kind of the, the mainstream of the past, um, at maybe as like a symbol for man's kind of dominion. Uh, it, it makes me think of Wendell Berry's conception of like paths versus roads. Yeah. Whereas, you know, I think maybe we've talked about this on yeah, the podcast. But it's a, we can talk about it again because I love that. Yeah. So a path is um, takes takes into account the sort of geography and the details of a space. Uh, and a road is an imposition of human will on a place. Uh, and so I, I think to me, it seems like McCarthy and Hillcoat in the movie are kind of using that, uh, the road, the, the road as a, as the same way, uh, Wendell Berry's using it as a symbol of man's dominion, their imposition of human will onto nature. Uh, and it's implied at the end, if this kid is going to survive, which we can talk about, you know, what's going on with the ending, but, uh, if he is going to survive, he he has to do it in a way that is different than uh, that which is implied by the metaphor of the road. Yeah, and it kind of it makes me think a little bit about another post-apocalyptic uh, journey movie, uh, which Zombie was, Land. Uh, I was going to say Book of Eli. Well, and the uh, Robert Duvall's character is named Eli. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Have you seen Book of Eli? I have not. It's been recommended to me, though. It's, it's not great, but the, the whole kind of gist is that it's kind of a journey of faith, and you have to put your you know faith in some kind of higher power to get you to where you need to be, that kind of thing. Whereas mm-hmm. in The Road, um, it's kind of you could make a similar kind of argument, but I think it's meant to be way more ambiguous because the only reason – they're on this journey in the first place is because when uh, the mother, Charlize Theron, goes off into the woods, the last thing she says is, you know, take them south, keep them warm. You won't survive another winter here. And so that's the impetus for the whole trip. And so they're on the road and they're, they're following roads, literally like a road map that mm-hmm. Vigo has. And they're, they're, that's how they're getting to the coast. And so even though all that seems more or less left up to, to chance and they're only getting there because like you said, they're following these, you know, man-made impositions on the landscape. It's the only way they have to get from where they are to where they're trying to go. And then we get to the, to the end of that and they're done following this kind of blind journey that they've been on. And so, okay, what happens now? Well, the family shows up and that's where, like you're saying, the ending's really ambiguous and it's this idea of 
well, is this family kind of the saving grace for the boy? Or are they bad news? Like, is this a good thing that's happened? Um, and, and and also, is the kid dead? Like, did the, he just, did he shoot himself? Yeah, the, we, you could also you know definitely what I'm saying? make that. Because this is, this is a, given what we've seen in the rest of the film, this is a preposterous fantasy. You know, this is exactly the fantasy that this kid would, this is, this is the exact thing that this kid would uh, conjure up as heaven, right? Yeah, uh, that, that, and that's a, a really interesting way of putting it. It makes me think back to, you know, this is a child born after the events that have kind of ended the world, and there's that, the great scene that I always remember when they're in the bunker and, and Vigo's smoking the cigarette, and he says, I must seem like I'm from a different world. Right. Uh, but he does, right? Like, that's a world that this child has no conception of so for him heaven might look like oh this family showed up and they have a kid almost my age and we can play together they have right. a dog and, and the way like the questions he asks and the way that guy pierce's character responds to me feels kind of intentionally artificial it's like it's like this kid is just like ticking the boxes of his criteria for paradise and he says do you have a little boy and he says, yes, I have a boy and a girl. So it's like better than he even conceived of. And then he says, how old? About your age, a little older. Like, it's just exactly what you would want if you were a, you know, eight-year-old boy or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and, and like you said, in these circumstances, this may be sort of the limits of his sort of imagination of something perfect. Uh, and there's there's even a dog, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And he said animals don't, you know, animals have been wiped off the face of the planet. Uh, so, yeah, what what uh, we're supposed to think happens at the end, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I guess I am sure that we're not supposed to be sure. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, and that's where I, I kind of was making the trying to make this comparison with the Book of Eli, because it's, it's definitely a kind of. uh leap of faith kind of scenario but kind of on the part of the characters and on the part of us as viewers of well you know what ending do do we get from this like what ending do we see as being not just the most plausible but sort of which one feels better to us mm-hmm. like are we okay saying that this kid is dead and this is heaven and if so is that the better outcome right because that's kind of the the mother's point the whole time is that we should have all killed ourselves a long time ago because nothing good is ever going to come out of this. Um, I would like to see her and Russ Cole have a, a conversation <laughs> about the, about the, the value of life. If you get a chance, you should kill yourself. <laughs> it should be like, you're right. I should. Uh, and that's kind of, yeah, uh, that's sort of the, the thing that it's, it's kind of funny that, Earlier, I used the phrase Sisyphean, and uh, it definitely fits, but I kind of also saw it in some other uh, people's kind of writings about the film and about McCarthy's work in general. And it is kind of funny that, you know, in the myth of Sisyphus, Camus' big thing is like the the only question worth considering is is whether or not you should kill yourself. And in the road, the the opening line of that book, I believe. Yeah. And in the road, like, that's the question. Like, should we keep continuing or should we just kill ourselves? Right. And, and again, you're right. It is uh, the sort of Sisyphean existence where 
there's no site of reward. You, you know, they kind of concoct this, uh, this goal of the coast, but I mean, they get there and it's just more <laughs> the desolation. Gold coast. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I definitely think there's a lot of Camus there and, and I guess we can talk about the fire sort of theme, which, um, uh, for people who aren't super, uh, familiar with Cormac McCarthy's books. This is a a theme that runs through. Uh, I, th- I think I've read four novels by Cormac McCarthy, and every novel has this theme of carrying fire. Um, you can you you hear it in No Country for Old Men in the character Ed Tom Bell's dream at the end, very end of the book and end of the movie. Oh yeah. yeah. Uh, about uh you know this dream he has of uh his father going on ahead in the mountains in the dark and he's got the horn that uh, people used to carry fire in and uh, it's it's all through blood meridian uh Sutri as well uh, uh cornelius i believe is the uh name of uh, first name of the character Sutri, and i can't remember where i was reading but the name Cornelius is somehow affiliated with uh, etymologically related to like cornucopia, like the horn, uh, like the, like the Ed Tom Bell character references these oh. horns that people would carry fire in. Okay. Uh, anyway, there's, there's in, in everything I've read by Cormac McCarthy, this theme, this metaphor of carrying fire as, as a symbol of, kind of soldiering on and keeping your humanity um, uh, kind of courage in the face of the absurd kind of thing uh, is it's everywhere. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to that primordial thing of like man created fire. And that's kind of where we started to separate ourselves from the other animals. Uh, kind of like yeah. Tom Hanks yeah. and Castaway. <laughs> where yeah. He's, I've, yeah, I've made fire Promethean fire like yeah. like in uh, I know we talked about mother and Ed Harris's character the sort of Adam character is a smoker you know Remini comes into the house yeah he's you know he's immediately man the first man is immediately identified with fire 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 in a in a substance that is addictive <laughs> yeah first yeah. two things and, and fire in a house that was just recently rebuilt after being burned down <laughs> yeah perfect but it, and that that sort of seems to be the uh kind of the motivation for for vigo's character at least and he's trying to pass it on to his son of you know we have to carry the fire and his son's like well what is that how do i do that um and it it's kind of it can verge on being a very kind of tired sort of metaphor um, of, you know, make sure you carry the fire within you, right? It sounds kind of, can be cheesy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's set up like that. So you can, you can just as easily dismiss it and be like, well, that's just bullshit. This is a world that's completely fucked. Like you're never, it doesn't matter if you believe or whatever. But, but again, that's kind of what makes it so endearing is that the whole time he's like, no, we have to keep going. We have to carry the fire. Um, sort of like how his son the whole time after every event is like, dad, are we the good guys? 
Like I thought we, I thought we only hurt bad guys, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, of breaking it down to those very kind of black and white terms. Um, and it's just sort of funny to see this child struggling with it when we as viewers know, or at least if, you know, we're thinking about it, we know that good and bad is not in the equation anymore, really. Like everything's just a different shade of gray, kind of like the cinematography. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and you, you see this, uh, the kid has a real need to have a an arena in which to be kind to people. It's like, it, it's in a way, it's kind of an optimistic. This may be the first time anyone's ever called Cormac McCarthy an optimist, but it's kind of an optimistic view of of humanity that this kid raised in a world of of necessary selfishness uh, is like kind of hungry for a a an opportunity to be kind and generous because he's never really gotten to be generous before because there, he has not grown up with, with, with plenty of anything, you know? And so as soon as they find that awesome, you know, shelter with all the food and then they come across, uh, Eli, Robert Duvall's character, um, he's like kind of jumps at the opportunity to give this guy a can of peaches and he's trying to hold his hand and it's just, in a way, it's an optimistic aspect of the story where instead of being innately selfish, humanity is like by necessity selfish, but still has this this innate desire to be generous and and to help others. Yeah, and it's kind of a, I mean, that's kind of one of the most depressing aspects of the film is that it's generosity as a luxury Right. That you can only be generous if you happen to have hit the jackpot like they did with the, the bomb shelter that they find. Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes me think of like how our society is kind of heading that way more so and more so that, uh, you know, of course I would love to be more generous and give money to worthwhile causes and all that, but I have to live and I have to <laughs> feed myself. Right. Um, well, I think, I think, uh, kind of abundance is something we're supposed to think about when we watch this movie. One of the most interesting scenes to me is the Coke Coca-Cola scene. Yeah. Where he wants, he like insists that his dad drink some of it. Well, well that, but just the fact that they find it, are they, it looks to be like an abandoned office building. Something like that. It, it to me it looks like a like an office building and the uh, uh, coke machines you know the vending machines are like in a break area or something and because we see it the way we do abandoned and desolate um, and it's just you know by random chance that this coke was not raided and uh, I guess it was stuck or something. Um, but I think we're invited to reflect on, because he calls it a treat. He said, what the kid says, what's that? He says, it's a treat for you. Uh, and, and I think we're invited to reflect on how weird it is that we have these buildings 
that are just full of treats that are not even intended to be full of like this is a place this is a business place and yet it's full of preposterous luxuries like you know i mean any give us given office building probably has a thousand bottles of coke in it you know that's just weird and and we can't feel that as weird and strange until we see it in a context like we see it in in the road or something similar yeah we're defamiliarized yeah where all those things that are are snacks or treats become sustenance all of a sudden right Um, yeah they're just like chowing down on some spam and cheetos in the shelter (laughs) it's kind of funny to think about like every now and then i'll come across a, a vending machine somewhere and i'll think like who is this for like, well, why is there, why is there a Coke machine here? Like who's coming here and like, Hey, a Coke machine. I happen to have a pocket full of quarters. I would love to have one. Um, or, you know, now they all, most of them have card readers. So when you see one that doesn't, you're like, Ooh, throwback. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's just, it's, it, I, I, I really like that scene because to me, it makes me think about how, how familiar things become and and we can't even see the luxury after we've been around it enough. We just, it just seems normal for there to be, you know, for instance, these these uh, bottles of hermetically sealed uh, sugar liquids that we only have because they taste good, you know, uh, just at the ready for a dollar anywhere we want in America at all times. Like yeah. at, at any point in America, you're like never more than like five minutes from a Coca-Cola. And that's a conservative estimate. It's uh, kind of funny. Like you, you said that uh, a phrase you said a minute ago was buildings full of treats. And that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of what our society is. Just <laughs> yes. Buildings full of treats. Um, so it's kind of I keep going back to that William T. Volman thing where he's talking. To, he's writing to the person in the future. And just imagine like I, I don't think the near future, near ish future will be anything quite as dire as the road. At least I hope not. Uh, but it does kind of make you think of like 20 years from now, is it, are you going to look completely ridiculous, uh, because you live during the time of buildings full of treats? Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. I thought about that book, um, uh, watching it as well, especially when they find the, uh, shelter, and there's a light switch because it's, yes. you go you go a while without seeing electricity. Even in the flashbacks uh, at their home, they're you know at night they're lit by candlelight. And and so I, I thought about that Volman book and his sort of preface about um, you know if you're reading this, you should know that uh, in the past in the past people would wake up and flick a switch and lights would come on. That probably sounds crazy to you. Yeah. Which goes back to the whole, uh, you know, Vigo scene where he's like, I must seem like I'm from a different world. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's smoking a cigarette and drinking his Jack Daniels. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a very pleasing scene. I don't know. It's just like, it's like the one relief one moment of relief you feel in the whole movie. Yeah. It's kind of his last meal as a character uh, yeah. in a way. Um, since he dies of what I assume is pneumonia, um, something, some kind of respiratory ailment. Yeah. I don't know. 
Um, but it also made me think of, or the whole film really made me think of uh, Captain Fantastic, which of course we talked about. And uh, so in Captain Fantastic, we had, uh, you know, Vigo as the, the dad who's kind of the drill sergeant and also the kind of philosopher king of his group of kids. And he's, uh, protective of them, but also trying to, you know, turn them into these, uh, Ubermensch type characters. Um, as opposed to the Vigo of this movie, who is very much, um, like a, a bad survivalist, I would say, <laughs> um, kind of the opposite of that character, uh, from Captain Fantastic, but through necessity is kind of able to scrounge out survival for him and his son. Um, so it's just interesting to see two roles where he's playing uh, a dad in a very kind of precarious parental situation. Yeah, yeah, definitely some similarities. Uh, there was something we said earlier that definitely reminded me. Uh, well, something that's definitely uh, present in both of those films is something we've talked about with most of the movies on this podcast is telling the truth to children. And, uh, obviously we talked about that in captain fantastic because the, uh, Vigo's character in that movie is very blunt with his children. And he, it's a, he sort of toes the line a little bit in this movie with what he explicitly tells the boy uh, because he doesn't really have to tell him anything. There's like no way for him to censor the world. <laughs> yeah, like his, there's absolutely no responsibility on on him to be honest about anything. But but he does censor himself a little bit. It seems like when he says, you know, that conversation you mentioned earlier about are we the bad? Are we still the good guys? And and he says yes. And he says, will we will be will we be the good guys no matter what happens? And he says, yes, no matter what happens, which is just a sort of philosophically illogical thing. Um, he's basically saying we can't be the bad guys because we are us. Um, and he's just sort of, in a way, indoctrinating the kid to that belief because he loves him and wants him to survive so that so that the kid will feel okay with doing anything to survive. Like, no matter what you do, you will be the good guy. So it's okay. You know, um, because he tells him this right after he shot the dude in the face. Yeah. Uh, so it does seem like, um, he kind of, he kind of indulges the kids kind of childish, uh, fantasies, which is totally understandable given the circumstances. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, if the kid's fantasy is like, I just want us to be the good guys, well, you can maybe swing that. Um, he's yeah. not asking for a whole lot. Uh, but then that, you know, that comes, uh, or at least uh, that whole conception of, you know, we're the good guys no matter what, it kind of comes back when uh, Michael K. Williams' character, the the thief, shows up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Vigo takes the retribution on him and takes all of his stuff like right down to his shoes and leaves him just naked. Um, and that's when you see the son kind of for the first time think, Oh, well this, this is wrong. Like we are not the good guys in this scenario. 
um, and convinces him to go back and, and, uh, you know, leave the can of food for him. Um, which is just a very kind of, it, it's a nice gesture, but at the same time, it's like, you've probably killed this guy already. And, and is he the one, I was a little bit confused. Is he the one that dies by the flare gunshot? No, but that's someone else, what? I believe. Okay. Watch, uh, me, watch me be wrong. I don't know. I, I couldn't, I couldn't really tell. Um, but I did think it was interesting given what we've said about carrying the fire and, and they always say, they always point at their chest when they say the fire inside that when he shoots the flare gun, he like kills this guy and he's got, you, you see the dead body and the chest is still on fire, you know, like right in the center of his chest. Yeah. Um, I, I don't really know what to do with that other than say, Hey, that sounds like this metaphor that they've been pushing on us. <laughs> it's like a, his dirty, hairy line. Before he shoots the guy with the flare gun, he's like, carry the fire. Shoots him in the <laughs> chest with it. You're fired. God. Um, <laughs> oh, man. Um, also, uh, other things about the, the movie The Road we should talk about. Well, you know, and that's kind of the thing about this that we're, we're kind of running out of things is that so much of the film i like it i feel like it drags maybe a little bit and it's because you lose so much of the you know beautiful kind of rich writing of the novel is that some of it can be kind of slow at times um but really there are only what like five events in the film Mm -hmm. really and they're like big traumatic events but there, there aren't very many of them you know, you have them finding the uh, the cannibal house. And I right. will say that, like, you're talking about fire as being a McCarthy trope. I think cannibalism very much is, too. <laughs> uh, yeah. Weirdly yeah. enough. Um, and that's, you know, the line that, that Vigo has in the narration of, like, cannibalism was the big fear. And that's kind of the, the number one thing that he's trying to avoid is being eaten. Um, and so you, you get this kind of house with all these people that are, you know, just given over to these worst impulses, kind of what were the, the ultimate taboo that, you know, human beings should never do this thing. Um, uh, so that, you know, that's the, the first time, like the, I guess running into the gang and when he shoots the guy is sort of the first event. And then there's that. And then it's kind of, they go on for a while and they find the shelter and then they meet the thief and they meet Eli and they meet the couple where they shoot the guy with the flare gun and then he dies. And then that's kind of it. Um, so it is kind of a weird kind of, um, I don't know we talked about Snowpiercer feeling like a video game, but this can kind of feel like a video game. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So- getting from one level to the next, you got the basement level, you've got the, the, uh, uh, the escape from the, you know, the, uh, where he shoots the guy. Yeah. I, I see what you're saying. Kind of linear track. And even the, the game, the, the last of us is kind of, it's a different narrative, but it's about a kind of apocalyptic scenario. Mm. Um, so it, like there's a lot in the film, but I think the, we're the things we've talked about so far, most of the things we've talked about have been those little nuggets that carry over from the novel. So like the dialogue or right. the voiceover or, you know, it, I can't, sort of credit them enough for uh, fleshing out Charlize Theron's character more because it makes it 
you know, really complex and sort of difficult to, mm-hmm. to watch uh, and to think about. Um, it's kind of funny that like post-apocalyptic couple, it's like two really beautiful people. <laughs> Vigo is uh, less than beautiful when, when you're in the present tense in the, in the film, that's uh, a shout, you know, props to him for, uh, going there he's kind of disgusting looking most of the movie <laughs> yeah. uh, this dude like i don't know that he's ever been more than like 0.2 percent body fat oh vigo yeah yeah he's pretty he's pretty uh pretty yeah. toned down in this yeah. movie he's uh he lost quite a bit of weight yeah lost muscle too like i don't know when yeah i don't know yeah. what i can't remember what his uh filmography looks like but I think this is right around Eastern Promises, maybe. Yeah, somewhere around there. It's maybe this might have been a little bit after that. Yeah, so it's a couple years after. Um, and then then he made a Dangerous Method, which is an oh, interesting yeah. movie. Yeah, I, it's weird you said. That. I watched that maybe a month ago. Really? I, I'd seen I'd seen it five or six years ago, uh, but I just like so that we we have this video store, you know. Uh, in town that's like a mid 90s fever dream and called family video and i rented a dangerous method for like 50 cents and uh yeah it's a it's a weird one it's interesting and of course green book right says i haven't seen that one i i'm not like i might watch it eventually because it's best picture but i don't think i'll enjoy it very much yeah, what what was it that I think we were like podcasting on on Oscar night, and I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. What what were the other nominees? Because I remember just thinking that was a fucking travesty. Um, well, Bohemian Rhapsody was. Oh yeah. Definitely won. Um, let me see, ninety first Academy Awards. Um, now it's just me googling stuff now. Um, <laughs> Black Panther. Black Klansman, uh, which was fine. Um, the favorite was if the Roma, oh, yeah. Roma, and the favorite. Oh, it was Roma that I was rooting for. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, and also Vice, yeah. which I haven't seen. Uh, but yeah, that's. I guess I shouldn't judge because I haven't seen Green Book, but everything I've heard about it is that it's a little bit, uh, uh, kind of like a seventy-year-old white man's version of hip. Yeah, it's like it's woke if you're in your mid sixties. <laughs> um, although talking about awards, it does bring up something I wanted to mention, which is that the road uh, didn't win any. It, the film was kind of under the radar. I don't. I mean, it was just sort of uh, you heard about it, but no one really talked about it. And as I was watching, I was like, "Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense." No one wants to see a realistic depiction of the end of the world. Yeah. Like this is this is not entertaining. <laughs> like yeah. and I will say is, that like the uh the I mentioned watching the short interview with with Vigo and uh he, it's sort of a interview that's spliced together with the trailer for the movie like the original trailer mm-hmm. and it the trailer makes it look like some sort of like run of the mill action movie. It's like <laughs> father son trying to survive um they'll kill who they have to like the stupid stuff like that um right. when really that's 
not like this is not an action but like we just i just talked for a while about how there's not a whole lot of action in the movie period uh but yeah it was just sort of i I think maybe mismarketed people that didn't really know what they were getting into um or you know it it made like a modest profit i wrote down that it made like two and a half million dollars which is Mm -hmm. fine i guess um yeah you you it's dangerous with, with trailers, you know, you, you create expectations through trailers and then, uh, I guess, I guess that's the logic is you just got to get people to buy the ticket, even, yeah. even if it's dishonest, yeah. uh, get people to buy the ticket, but then people buy the ticket and then they see it and they say, that is not at all what I expected. Don't waste your money. And then no one else sees it. Yeah. Like, uh, well right now it's kind of happening somewhat with once upon a time in Hollywood, yeah, yeah. People thinking they're yeah. getting one thing and then not getting what they bargained for. Right. Um, right. But I, and, and and Tarantino seems to be well aware of that. Just just that one line. It's like toward you know as the violence is about to start happening uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it cuts to like a TV and and it the some announcer or something on TV says, "And now the moment you've all been waiting for." <laughs> You know, it's like he knows exactly what you are expecting in this yeah. movie. And it does have like one of the greatest lines of modern movie history. It's, I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. Uh, man, I just like weirdly been waking up thinking that. <laughs> I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. Um, it's kind of amazing that in 2019 he could pull off a, a kind of bait and switch like that. Yeah, I uh I don't I haven't really settled my my thoughts on that movie. Um I'd like to see it again just to to give another another go. Yeah, I was uh with some people that I like some new acquaintances the other night and it came up and I asked kind of what their opinions of it were uh, before I started talking about it. And they were all they all kind of had the same thing where they're like they're like, "Well, you know, there, it's a lot there's a lot of debate around it a lot of people have a lot of different opinions but i really liked it and i was like yeah that, that's kind of my opinion too um anyway ba- back to the road there's uh something i wanted to mention since we we're talking about it's kind of lack of fanfare um I was, the other interviews i was looking at for this there's a brief one on youtube with uh, kenneth lincoln dr kenneth lincoln who's a professor at ucla and he's written this uh, book on McCarthy that looks really interesting um, called American Canticles. And he was talking about the road and he was saying, well, you know, it's directed by John Hillcoat, who I think is Australia's best director, who only makes a movie like every decade or whatever. And it's got this great cast. And uh, I think it's just it's going to win all the awards. It's going to sweep the Oscars. <laughs> and I was like, mm, no, not quite. Not exactly. Uh, not even a nomination. Uh or at least, you know, not an acting nomination. You would think it would have right. been Vigo if it had happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, or even supporting for the kid. He knocks yeah. it out of the park. Um, that proud uh, Anthropocene's tradition of young actors doing well. Yeah. We've, we watched, we've watched several movies where the, the kids do do a great job. Leave No Trace especially. Yeah. Um, I guess... I guess one thing we could talk about is uh, 
Robert Duvall's character, Eli, sort of seems to be commenting on climate change, like the, the, the political issue of climate change when he says something like, uh, you know, people said it was a con. Yeah. Do you remember this moment yeah. where he said, you know, people, people thought it was a con. He's like, I, I never thought that I, I you know, I, I knew something was coming. I just like didn't know it was going to be this, you know, something I knew it would be something like this. I didn't know what it'd be, but, uh, which is really to, as far as I can tell in the movie, the only kind of explicit acknowledgement of, of, uh, you know, uh, a contemporary political issue of climate change. Yeah. And it, it, since it's stated in such a kind of sagely way right mm-hmm. so he's sort of like the the blind man at the crossroads with all this like weird knowledge um mm-hmm. it, it makes it uh, applicable to a lot of different scenarios so you could say that about climate change you could say it about you know global armed conflict um sort of, pick, sort of nuclear event yeah. yeah like pick your poison and, and it can fit for that um but it's just no one does, does anyone think that that war or like a nuclear event is a con you know it's, it's it's sort of interesting to think like no one i mean you might doubt that it will happen but you don't doubt that it can happen uh, and that's that's sort of an interesting uh something we i think we've sort of been picking up on in this podcast is how uh in some ways, especially in First Reformed, climate change has sort of become the new nuclear war, like the sort of the alarming issue of our time. And you see that especially through First Reformed as an updated Winter Light, uh, the Ingmar Bergman film Winter Light, where, it, like I said, it's basically a, a remake, but it's it's nuclear war that is uh, – kind of the thing that the the Michael character, basically the worried young man, uh, is concerned about in Winter Light. Um, so, so there are some parallels between kind of the public awareness and alarm over both uh, some sort of nuclear war and climate change. And yet, like I was saying, no one believes that nuclear... Like, uh, at least uh, as far as I know, the, the, were there people who like doubt the potential of nuclear war? Like, Oh, it wouldn't be that bad. Uh, but, but it's like, it's like a special case with climate change where people think it doesn't like, it's not real. Here's, here's a thing that people are concerned about. That's not even a real concern. Not that it won't happen, but that it can't happen. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting to think about because, our attitude toward nuclear weapons has, you know, shifted so often, I feel like, and so quickly. And, you know, maybe I'm just talking out of my ass here, but I know near the beginning of when we first developed the bomb, uh, there were calls to just keep using it. I know uh, during Korea, that was the Korean war. That was the thing of like nuke China. And then we don't have to worry about them, that kind of thing. Um, which is something that was being discussed like in the halls of power in, in our government. Um, and that comes all the way through the, you know, the sixties and the seventies and the eighties up, up through today where now, um, you know, we don't really, 
you know, if you're born in like the 80s, mid 80s onward, you have this idea of like nuclear war is a thing that people were worried about before I was born. Like it's not seen as being, you know, even with Korea and Iran and all these sort of threats people talk about and India and Pakistan, that kind of thing. Uh, people don't really ever think about it anymore as a possibility, even though it's very much like the fastest way humans could end the world. Um, right. And it's kind and of it, interesting yeah, to think it's, about. It's just as possible now. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's the thing. I don't even know if it's more possible now. Yeah. Like, is yeah. it is it more likely now than it was in 1962 or whatever? Um, but it's kind of interesting to think about that. It just kind of never went away and we just kind of acclimated to it. Right. Which is, we've mm-hmm. talked about that being, um, maybe both a blessing and a curse with climate change of becoming acclimated to it and being like, Oh, well, you know, we can't go outside during the day in the summer anymore, but that's just how it is. It's how it's been since my right. daddy. Climate, climate change is not real. This is just, see, it's normal outside. Because because you call normal whatever is happening outside. Yeah, like uh, right now in, in Alabama, it, it wasn't so bad today, but there were a couple days previous to this, it was like 97 degrees um, and humid as fuck. So you can imagine it's like being outside too long and be like, my lungs are shutting down. I'm done. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's deep south, but at the same time, I can't help but feel like it's a little bit more intense than maybe it would have been otherwise. Even in like the heat wave in Europe recently, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, Europe is a continent that's not prepared for that kind of heat. Their buildings don't mm-hmm. have air conditioning, a lot of them, the older ones. So, um, yeah, it's it's it, the way people shift their kind of paradigms for thinking about these threatening things is, is very interesting to me if well you know what are we really worried about if you watch like doomsday preppers which is on netflix and i'd recommend it because these people are fucking ridiculous um <laughs> you see the, the kind of people that would have made the bomb shelter in uh, the road but then they end up dying anyway i guess um mm. but these people are afraid of like a terrorist that's off a dirty bomb in the city i live in it's like that's so like niche and like not even that and they, at the end, they kind of debunk it, and they're like, "Even if this happened, it wouldn't be that big of a deal." Um, right? It's like, why don't you worry about whether or not you're going to die in a car wreck on the interstate on your way home? Yeah, that is way more yes, likely to kill you. Many times more likely. Um, so yeah, it's just I don't know that it, it's interesting to see what people really kind of fear on a on a global scale like that. Uh, cause right now it's like misplaced for a lot of people. Right. So politically speaking, they've been sort of indoctrinated to be like, you know, Islamic terrorism is the greatest threat that the world faces or whatever. Right. Uh, meanwhile, like the seas are dying, <laughs> that, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and all that to say, you know, with the road, uh, the only, ex- uh, at least as far as I can tell, the only thing close to an explicit, acknowledgement of the sort of, like I said, the political issue is Eli, uh, Eli's character saying people thought it was a con, but I never did. Yeah. Um, and just like a, the, again, I'm going to, I just quote tweets who I can't remember who sent them. Uh, but there's a, there's a tweet that's like all these climate change deniers, like, Oh, what's your problem? Are you afraid that we're going to make the world better for nothing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I really like that thought and I, 
I, I had a sort of like kind of uh, generic kind of idea for a, a story that, or like a, a parable that kind of illustrates that where, uh, okay, everyone accepts that climate change is real. And so we have to start working to uh, live on a more local scale and stop using, uh, you know, being so heavily dependent on fossil fuels. We have to stop driving, uh, you know, considerable distances. Everything has to be uh, much, much more local and uh, sort of what you, you, communities using what's at hand to survive. Uh, and then, and, and because that happens, people become closer. You actually know the people that you are living near. You're dependent on them. More um, intimate communities form. And then it comes out that climate change was a big hoax. They've like proven that it was it was a lie. And then it's like, oh, and so everyone is free to go back to their miserable lives. Son of a bitch. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. like they would they would keep doing the things that they thought they ha had to do by necessity, uh, if that were the case. So even, uh, yeah, even if it came out that, you know, climate change was this big political hoax, uh, that would not change, uh, the fact that it's the, the, the way the things that climate change sort of suggests we should change are the right things to do. Yes. Like, and not be, uh, they're the right things, like independent of the political issue of climate change, uh, not being wasteful, being, uh, sort of acknowledging interdependence within local communities. Like this is how you should be living anyway, no matter what you believe about the political issue of climate change. Uh, but that's a, a very hard point to make. Yeah. But it's kind of funny to think of like worldwide utopia where everybody is zero waste and everything is recycled and reused and composted and it comes out it was a hoax and everybody's like, son of a bitch. Right. Like it, right. it was a hoax. We just wanted you all to live better lives. And I was like, ah, I knew something was up. Yeah. Fuck this. I'm going back to getting fat on the couch, watching Netflix, hating myself. You hop in uh, your, uh, your big Chevy dually truck and just like <laughs> pill out. Do a oh, donut. I missed you, baby. <laughs> Fishtail like through the parking lot of Walmart. <laughs> like that kind of thing. Um, oh, so, man. yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's kind of like, what do you really have to lose? No one seems to be happy. So what does it matter? If well, we it's like, up? it's like we're, we're trying to, you know, all uh, technology uh, sort of, luxurious technology seems to be freeing us freeing it's like we want it to free us from the things we don't want to do and yet there's nothing that we really do want to do um, because free time like leisure time is only good in in relation to like the work that you are doing and not necessarily employment. Obviously you will never hear me make that argument, but if you just sit around eating or I mean, if you just sit around uh, doing nothing all day, that is not pleasurable if you can do that anytime you want. But if you, you know, have a hard day's work and then you sit 
and watch a movie, that's a great, that's a great feeling. Um, and so we think that if we just free up our, all our days and we can just do that thing we want to do that, we will be happy. But that is certainly not the case. Yeah. And that, you know, like, and we've talked about this before, but the, the split between, uh, work as someone like, uh, Wendell Berry would define it and work like your manager at Walmart would define it. Work uh, versus employment. Yeah, yeah. Versus uh, exploitation of your labor. Um, so, and, and that's the thing I feel like so few people, um, perform that kind of like work in which you take pride and which is sort of like rejuvenating and you like are doing something that is uh, sort of beneficial to both you and to your environment and to those around you, that kind of thing. Like, well, so- and, that's, and, and that's because, because corporations are so centralized, like, you know, you have Walmart headquarters in Arkansas. And so, there's nothing, you know, despite their, their attempt at rhetoric by calling things like local, your local Walmart or neighborhood or market, the neighborhood market, or, you know, those like they've made the signs green now in some places, uh, laughable irony. Um, they're big down here. Actually, we have a couple of them, I think. Right. Um, yeah, you can't, I mean, Walmart is, infamous for destroying local business communities and therefore communities. Uh, and, and so you can't really, uh, add, you can add jobs by, you know, putting a Walmart in your town, but you can't add good work. There's no such thing as good work at Walmart. Um, yeah. but there might be a such thing as good work if instead of a, you know, conglomerated, um, uh, uh, sort of gardening section at Walmart, you had a, uh, nursery, like a, you know, a local nursery that was owned by someone who lived there. Uh, but Walmart comes in and puts these places, these, you know, small specialized places out of business. And then all that money goes to the one company. Um, that's why I really like, I, I don't like going to Walmart unless I have to get something that I just, because Walmart's driven everything out of business that I can't get it anywhere else. Uh, so like going there and, uh, my wife being like, Oh, you know, uh, this is cheaper here than at Kroger. And I'm like, yes, everything here is cheaper than everywhere else. <laughs> that, yes. That's the business model. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if that, if that is the only criteria that you use to make purchases, then it's the place for you. And that is why it's so wildly successful. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, people need in most cases, I say, I would say people need like that has to be their criteria. Yeah. They're, they're working on a serious budget. Yeah. That's why Uh, I never, so that's, that's not even a a consideration. You know, it makes me think I was, uh, I was talking to a, a student. I have, from the Ukraine, uh, who's, I, I was sort of curious, like how, you know, I, I was sort of asking her what the Ukrainian perception of climate change was. Um, cause I'm always interested to hear how, you know, people from other countries perceive 
this problem. And she said, basically, uh, rich people think about it and poor people don't. We're at war, essentially. Yes. Uh, so it's a, uh, it, he, she said, basically, it's the concern of, of people who are wealthy enough to not be impacted by the very real struggle happening there. Yeah. Which is, you know, kind of, well, I don't know, unless you're in like Bangladesh and the sea is swallowing your country. It's kind of the, the attitude everywhere. Right. So, yeah. so I'm just making the connection to, you know, shopping at Walmart out of, out of shopping at Walmart out of necessity. Like there's a sort of Maslow's hierarchy in, uh, with climate change. It's like, we can get on here and bitch and moan for, however many hours, but it's like, we can't solve, you can't, we can't solve climate change without solving sort of economic, uh, kind of basically the problem of wealth distribution, uh, wealth disparity. Uh, and, and really it's all one problem because the same people, the same sort of corporations promoting wealth disparity are the same corporations polluting and destroying the planet. Uh, and we're all working for them uh, in these bad jobs, like Walmart jobs that we're talking about. So you can't, it, it's weird how it's, it, it, it's hard to see, but it's all kind of one problem. Yeah. And that's why if you talk about something like the, the green new deal, it's, it's such a wide sweeping, all encompassing, you know, bit of, of, uh, potential uh well, fuck what's the word i'm looking for uh legislature i guess um, yeah it, it's it, a complete reorientation to yes. the planet it's not it's way more than legislation and that's yeah. why it's scoffed at because it, it dares to to tell the truth about what's necessary yes legislation i can for some reason i couldn't come up with the, <laughs> the that word for some reason um so yeah and that's why because it has to affect so many aspects like almost every aspect of of our everyday existence. Yeah. And you can't isolate one from the other. You can't compartmentalize it because it's all, it's all working together. We're yeah. all not working together. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, it's all functioning at, at, on some level. And for, you know, a, a lot of people, let's say probably majority of people just functioning is enough. Like, you know, let's keep this going because, you know, I haven't starved to death yet. So let's just, you know, I'm okay with things as they are. I'm going to die long before any of this hits the fan. So, you know, that's another uh, theme we've been talking about on this podcast is this uh, children and uh, related to the theme of telling the truth. I think a, a really good moment in the road is at the end when uh, Vigo Mortensen says you're not the one who has to worry about everything you know has to worry about taking care of everything and the kid sort of yells back and says yes I am I am the one uh, and so you see you know if you're looking at this through the lens of uh, climate change you see it is about the this younger generation they are the ones that have to worry um uh, and yes, it, it is a burden on everyone, you know, who's living through this, but it's maybe more, uh, of a psychological burden on young people for sure. Yeah. And you have the, uh, 
the young German girl who uh, is kind of at the forefront of this uh, kids climate movement. Um, and she gets just, just shit on by a uh, far right wing people on online constantly. And they're like, Oh yeah, this pushy little kid. And what does she know about the world and how things work and all that sort of stuff. Um, More than you apparently. Yeah. And, and it kind of, you know, if you think it makes me think of uh, we are the world, you know, isn't the first yeah. line of that. Like I believe that children are our future. <laughs> um, and that used to be the kind of prevailing attitude. Now it's like, fuck them kids. Yeah. Until they've been a, a regional manager city bank until you start a small business 25 in a, years they don't know what work is until you get a pell grant and start a small business in an impoverished area <laughs> so kamala harris can forgive some of your student loans yeah yeah they haven't learned the ways of the world yet yeah um and the, the ways of the world are like don't die in the daily uh sort of sun-baked hellscape <laughs> that you're going <laughs> to inhabit. Um, yes. Learn to live off of spam and the occasional Coca-Cola. Yeah, it's like I was thinking when I was watching the scene where they're chowing down on spam and Cheetos, I was like, this is some people's like paradise just like regularly, like in, in real life right now. Hell yeah. Like this is – it's meant to be like a joke, like, oh, look at this feast, Spam and Cheetos. But, like, that's what a lot of people eat without having, you know, with, without the necessity of it. Yeah. Um, going back to, like, the kind of people that shop at Walmart because it is the cheapest price they're going to yeah. find, right? And you can't fault. Like, I would never fault anyone for shopping at Walmart. I just, uh, you know, I like to scream into the void, see, hear my vo- voice echo back at me. Um, well, there's something a little bit infuriating to me when you hear, when you see people who can afford to eat, you know, what I would call food as opposed to food product, <laughs> yeah. uh, when they don't like Bill Clinton's whole McDonald's thing, there's just something a little bit, maybe more than a little bit condescending about that. Well, like Trump, uh, Trump, who is like the fast food president. Right. It's like, it's like you know, I'm no better than you. I, I, I eat this shit too. Like <laughs> it's like, I yeah, line up at the slop trough, like uh, every, all the rest right. of you little piggies. But it's, but it's, uh, but there's something condescending about that. And, and they're sort of acknowledging that it is slop and that there is this other, uh, you know, whole culture of, uh, yeah, whatever. But, uh, <laughs> all that to say, there's something condescending when people, it's when it. people use shit food as as like a way of slumming it with the with the real Americans, it's like every every conversation like this eventually gets to the point where like, eh, fuck it, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Who cares? Yeah, we're changing the name of the podcast. Oh, fuck it, whatever. Um. But no, I guess that's everything. I think we, we just about covered it all. Yeah, I think we've um, come to the end of the road. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, I mean, I would recommend it. I would recommend the book, too. Um, and like I said, they're they're kind of like with, well, less so than with No Country for Old Men, but they're different experiences, definitely. 
yeah. which is yeah. maybe stupid to say. I guess every novel is going to be a different experience than the the film, unless it's a really faithful adaptation. Yeah, and and there's there's definitely some where they capture the, you know, there's almost a one to one sort of capturing of the of the book, but uh, it's a it's different because it has to be. It's you know the same way it's it will be difficult to adapt like Faulkner or someone, uh, you know, a writer whose books are largely dependent on how they're written, you know, the style and uh, of the writer, as opposed to like. Oh, this is a James Patterson novel, highly adaptable into, you know, he's really just describing images, which is what a film is. Uh, it's less dependent on, on stylistic choices. So, yeah. uh, so I props to the, to the screenwriters of, of, uh, the road or the screenwriter, um, because it's, uh, seemed like it would be a difficult task yeah and it's you know it's a fine movie like it's it's maybe not the best thing i've ever seen but it's definitely worth watching um we don't do verdicts on here i don't know why i'm even still talking yeah Uh, so run out to the theater and see this one run out to your local family video and rent it for a nickel (laughs) take the kids out to see the road minimal can (laughs) rated nc-17 for rampant cannibalism (laughs) <laughs> um, there's like a special there's like a special Cormac McCarthy rating it's a right I- MC17 yeah <laughs> um, so uh, next week we're returning to a director for the first time uh, and usually we would do like the the auteur theory and do like a special right. for them. we're gonna do some more Clint Eastwood <laughs> we're gonna just go back to his spaghetti westerns and talk about those um then now we're coming back to the director jeff nichols who we talked about his film take shelter um a little bit a little bit ago and now we're gonna be talking about a more recent film of his 2012's mud uh starring matthew mcconaughey again so more mcconaughey and also yeah. more michael shannon uh so and it's gonna be a different kind of discussion i think because instead of like a direct one-to-one kind of representation of of climate change or climate trauma or whatever it may be uh, i think the film has more to say about a kind of relationship with nature and sort of a view of nature and how we sort of exist within these environments that we think of as being natural Mm -hmm. uh, so to speak so it'll be it'll be a little bit different um some slight kind of mystical stuff going on i think yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So uh yeah, we're back in the back in the saddle and I guess we'll just be back to weekly pumping them out. Yeah. I'm thinking like uh, we haven't discussed this yet, but the 25th episode coming up, maybe on the 25th episode or the 30th, we just like do a first reformed redux. Oh yeah. And just um, splooge about that. it for another hour. It's it's been at least a month since I've watched it, so it's uh it's <laughs> time. But I'm due for my monthly first reform viewing. Yeah, let's do it. Um so follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets, available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts. Uh just wherever you feel like finding it. Wherever you feel froggy, you go right ahead and you leap. <laughs> Leap into that greater, the bunghole of a greater hell beyond. <laughs>
<laughs> yes. Uh, that'll be our first t-shirt, a frog leaping into a hole, into like a fire. Um, all right. So that's it. That's all. That's it. And that's all.